This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. My name's Ian Gordon. I have the uh, unenviable job of introducing someone who needs no introduction. Uh, Henry Jenkins is a professor at the University of Southern California. He's probably best known uh, for works such as Textual Poachers, Convergence Culture, and Spreadable Media. Henry's interest in comics uh, goes back uh, in published work, uh, as far as I know, to 1991 and his piece in The Many Lives of Batman, and he's continued that interest. Uh, What's probably most unknown about Henry to this audience is his wrestling career, which sadly, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, is probably now at an end uh, with his uh, injury, recent injury, for which our commiserations, Henry, if you're there and can hear me uh, babbling on here. Um, So, It's really hard to see up the back and get a thumbs up that he's there and available. He's there and available. So let's welcome uh, Henry Jenkins, who's going to address us on the topic of what else can you do with them, superheroes and the civic imagination. Welcome, Henry. Good morning, Melbourne. Happy to be talking to you today. So sorry that I can't be there in person. As some of you may have heard, I had a chronic, have been suffering chronic back pain, and my doctors did not think it was possible for me to travel at this stage. So I'm going to be presenting this from my living room here in Los Angeles. Uh, But I'm eager to learn more about the discussions you're having there throughout the weekend. I've had a few emails from some of you. If you were hoping to meet me at the conference and are disappointed I'm not here, please just drop me an email at hjenkins at usc.edu, and I'd be delighted to hear from you. Today I'm gonna, as the cliche goes, talk about a work in progress. Uh, We've just launched an ambitious strand of research around the concept of the civic imagination, which I'm going to be exploring with you in a little more depth as we go forward. Um, And this is a preliminary stab at understanding it through the lens of the superhero. It builds on a piece that we did for Paul Mejia's and Eric Gordon's book, Civic Media that came out from MIT Press last year. That piece was primarily focused on superheroes in the context of the US. I'm taking a more global perspective for this conference and that's where a lot of the new material you're gonna hear comes from. Uh, So if the slides are ready to project, uh, we'll get started. And I'm supposed to be mirroring here what the slides are, so um, there we go. All right, so as I said, uh, the title, what else can you do with them? Superheroes and the civic imagination. If you go to the next slide. Um, so I'm beginning with the passage from Kurt Busiek uh, in the introduction to his first volume of Astro City some several decades ago, talks about the, the metaphoric value of the superhero. And he says, and particularly talks about it early in in this piece, in terms of how the superhero has enabled such powerful power, enabled power fantasies for adolescent males. And he goes on to say, if a superhero can be such a powerful and effective metaphor for male adolescents, then what else can we do with them? And that's a key question we're going to keep coming back to here. So if we go to the next slide. 
the quote continues, could you build a superhero story around a metaphor for female adolescence, around midlife crisis, around the changes adults go through when they become parents? Sure, why not? Next slide. And if the superhero can exemplify American self-image at the dawn of World War II, could a superhero exemplify America's self-image during the less confident 1970s? How about emerging national identity of a newly independent African nation or a non-traditional culture like the drug culture or the greed is good business culture of the go-go 80s? Of course, if you can do one, you can do the other. And Busick sort of dedicated Astro City to this process of exploring what other things superheroes could stand for, what other things superheroes could do. I think it may be striking reading this passage now that many of these stories have actually emerged from Marvel, DC, and other companies in the time since Busick first wrote that introduction. So that's my first piece of scripture to begin our presentation with. Let's go to the next slide. So I recently read chunks of Chris Gavalier's book uh, last year on the origins of superheroes, where he takes us through a number of different origin stories, trying to figure out where the idea of superhero comes from within the culture. And one of them is in a chapter called Revolution, where he takes us through the political origins of the superhero. And he writes there, when God retired from politics, supermen claimed the empty throne. When the star-spangled warriors of World War II fought for democracy, they never represented it. Peel back Captain America's flag costume, and you find Guy Fawkes and Oliver Cromwell, revolutionary radicals championing their own self-defined liberty. Today, we call them terrorists. So he's picking up there on the notion of the vigilante as hero. But beyond that, the idea of the superhero as an exceptional individual who nevertheless defines and defends the interest of a democratic society. So the, how do you deal with the ex exceptional individualism and democratic community in the, through the same figure? He sees as a central contradiction in the emergence of the superhero, if we go to the next. And he traces the, the, the origin of the superhero, as the quote says, through something like Guy Fawkes. And with the use of Guy Fawkes, we already see the connection to contemporary activism in the way that Guy Fawkes has traveled via V for Vendetta into the anonymous movement in the United States, into the Occupy movement around the world. The Guy Fawkes mask now is used widely for political protest out of the UK, less because of the political origins of the figure and more because of the superhero personification of that figure in, in Alan Moore's comics. If we go to the next slide. He also connects uh, the origin of superheroes to band, bandit kings like Robin Hood, who rob from the rich and give to the poor, and are self-appointed defenders of social justice, but also in the case of many versions of Robin Hood, uh, are tied to an establishment that has been unjustly displaced by the current managers of the society. And unquote. Um, next slide, please. He connects it to various mask Avenger figures running through swashbuckler literature, including the works of Alexander Dumas, the Man in the Iron Mask, uh, particularly the Scarlet Pimpernel, which has the notion of the alter ego and the, the, the rich man fighting for the rights of the poor and so forth. Next slide. And he connects it particularly to Zorro, who we was hop, skip and jump from Zorro to Batman. Many of you know Batman often depicts the night that the Wayne's, Bruce Wayne's parents gets killed. They're going to see a, a, a screening of 
Mark of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks. So Zorro has all those traits of the Scarlet Pimpernel, but also looks forward to the traits that will define Batman. So all of those are early prototypes, pre-superheroes, if it were, for a kind of political figure. But all of those are much more explicitly political than many of the superheroes that we've seen come down through the mass media industries, end quotes. Um, next slide, please. So some of you will know Thomas Andreas's piece on superheroes. Super process of Superman moving from a figure of evil to a figure of social benefit, a social benefactor, but along the way his mission gets redefined. So here we this page from an early Superman comic. Early Clark decided he must turn his titanic strength in the channels that would benefit mankind, and so he was created uh, Superman, the champion of the oppressed, the physical marvel who is sworn to defend um, Shoot, I can't. I'm having trouble reading over the the Skype thing. Give me a sec. Uh, who is who's sworn to devote his existence to helping those in need? So what Tandrea tells us is that this figure has a social a social justice agenda in these early comics. He goes after mine owners who exploit their workers. He defends wives against abusive spouses. He bursts down the door of the governor's mansion to defend a man on death row. There's a sense that he's fighting for social justice. And Andrea says by the end of World War II, if we go to the next slide, his mission has been redefined. Uh, and here we see the language most of us are probably more familiar with. He wages a never ending fight for truth, justice, and the American way. And the American way is so broadly defined that it seems to be what American stands for at a given point in time, i.e. what the government stands for that Superman defends. Next slide, please. So Thomas Andrea writes, Superman no longer operates outside the law, but is made an honorary policeman. His struggle against evil becomes confined to the defense of private property and the extermination of criminals. It is no longer a struggle against social injustice, an attempt to aid the helpless and the oppressed. Um, so what we've seen here, we have this notion of the political edge of the superhero being pulled, being blunted and he's turned into a figure fighting, a crime fighting figure, but not a figure fighting for social justice. In, uh, next slide, please. We see periodically Superman, though, can be brought back in as someone who comments on American society. These are some of the images produced in the wake of 9-11, where we see Superman and the other superheroes as professional mourners, in effect, speaking to America's shattered self-image its sense of increased vulnerability, uh, so forth. Next slide, please. Um, we see similar images of Captain America shedding his mighty tears, as I wrote in a piece at, shortly after 9-11, uh, standing over the battle torn of Manhattan, um, weeping for its people. In the next slide. We also see in that period Superman, as policeman, turning his attention to first responders and celebrating them as the true heroes of 9-11. And that's a sort of discourse we heard echoed in the video they showed just before my talk began, where being a superhero could be defined as a nurse, a teacher, a policeman, a fireman, and so forth. That These are our everyday superheroes, according to that discourse. Next slide, please. Uh, and we see, uh, in this slide, we see Superman overseeing 
the collaboration between the superheroes, the supervillains, and the media first responders to try to rebuild Manhattan in the wake of 9-11. Next slide. So, and in the wake of 9-11, we see a struggle over what will the superhero stand for politically in this world. So, so, uh, so Captain America says here, we can hunt them down. We can scour every uh, uh, body and uh, every bloodstained trace of their terror from the earth. We can turn every stone they've ever touched to dust and every blade of grass to ash, and it won't matter. You've got to be stronger than we've ever been. As a people, as a nation, we have to be America or they won. So we have this sort of sense of the superhero questioning their mission in the wake of traumatic events that affect their governments. And in the process, Captain America in the wake of 9-11 becomes a critic of the military industrial complex in the United States, forcing America to ask the question, why did they hate us so much? Next slide, please. We've seen in the we've seen Superman continually plays that period, but, but periodically plays that function as well. So here, from a recent sort of an imaginary story that was published in the DC comic and generated an enormous controversy, Superman decides that he can no longer fight for truth, justice in the American way. Truth, justice in the American way, it's not enough anymore. I'm tired of having my actions constrained as instruments of U.S. policy. So Superman goes independent of the government in this particular story as he struggles with how to help people in the Middle East. Next slide. Or here we see the Superman as an immigrant, a figure that we'll come back to again later in this talk. That's the idea that America was founded on. But it's not just for people born here, it's for everyone. And it's for people like me and Livewire too. So the notion of who is an American is something that superhero, Superman having decided to defend truth, justice in the American way feels entitled to ask, empowered to ask. And at that moment, we see the begin, we see the superhero take on a different kind of political consciousness again. Okay, next slide. Similarly, people, we, we can think about Gloria Steinem's amazing essay, reclaiming Wonder Woman as a feminist icon and sort of, claim, sort of making the case that superhero can be a tool for helping women to imagine their own emancipation. Uh, and again, the, having made that connection as early as the 1960s, uh, the Wonder Woman can continually function in a variety of works as an embodiment for better or for worse of Western feminism. And if we go to the next slide, so here we see an image from Alex Ross where Superman, Super Wonder Woman uh, uh, sort of makes her way into an encampment in Afghanistan, hiding under a burqa and then sheds it and seeks to liberate the women there. And the look, the shock look on their faces suggest the, the, the lack of communication, the gap between Western feminism and Islamic women's issues that um, the contemporary superheroes for all their power may not allow us to bridge very, very easily. Okay, next slide, please. Ramzi Fawaz makes a similar case for the power of the superhero for as a tool for the political imagination. Uh, in his new recent book, The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. And he's talking mostly about Marvel, mostly about the 1960s, but to some degree also about DC. 
Uh, and he says that the superhero evolved from a rigid representation of law and order to a dynamic figure of flux negotiating multiple identities and affiliations in the post-war period. It straddled overlapping and often competing commitments to liberal and radical political ideals. Next slide. The superhero comic expanded who got counted as legitimately human within liberal thought by valuing those bodies that were commonly excluded from liberal citizenship, uh, including those of sexual outlaws, racial minority, and the dis, uh, disabled. Next slide, please. Can, can continues, it highlighted human and non-human difference as the defining feature of all social creatures rather than their universal sameness, while also suggesting a need for a political common ground that would bind people across multiple identities and loyalties. And here my illustration is from the amazing run of, of, of Green Arrow, Green Lantern from the late 60s, early 70s, where they seek out to define, define America and debate along the way from conservative and progressive perspectives what the mission of the superhero should be. And we see here a black man confronts Green Lantern and says, I've been reading about you, how you work for the blue skins and how on the planet somewhere you help out the orange skins. And if you've done consider and you've done considerable for the purple skins, only their skins you never bothered with, the black skins. I want to know how come. Answer me that, Mr. Green Lantern. And Green Lantern says, I can't. So it's the beginning. This is people have talked about this as a reintroduction of political realism into American comics. It's text that I come back to often. And I think does tell a story of what, it, what is the play, political role of superheroes in American society. So go to the next page. Next slide. Uh, on the streets of Memphis, a good black man died. And in Los Angeles, a good white man fell. Something is wrong. Something is killing us all. Some hideous moral cancer is rotting our very souls, Green Arrow says. Again, in the same series, connecting his, the notion of what, a hero, what kind of heroes America needs back to the assassinated leaders that have, were so much in the air and the political realities of that particular moment. Next slide. And so Green Lantern and Green Arrow take off together to try to, across America to try to figure out what they can do that will matter and make a difference on issues of poverty, racism, uh, environmental justice, and hate groups. Next slide. And along the way, they also discover problems in their own backyard, as when we find out that Speedy um, uh, is, um, is, 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 an, is a drug addict, and uh, we have to um, have to work through have to work through what what's the right response. I'm sorry, not Speedy. Um, anyway, next slide, please. So it's interesting that people have compared Green Arrow and Green Lantern's move, journey across America to something like Easy Rider which was such an iconic film of that same vintage. Uh, but as we think about Easy Rider itself, the, the Peter Fonda character in Easy Rider goes by the name Captain America. So we see again that the, the, the counterculture was itself making connections back to superhero comics as it makes sense of its own search for what the truth, justice, the American dream, American way might mean in the context of a deeply divided society like the 1960s America. Next slide, please. So we're used to these kinds of images that come out of the World War II period. Michael Chabon has brought our attention back to the role that superheroes in, the, in, in World War II America were, as the language of the McCarthy Committee would have put it, prematurely anti-fascist. 
the comics created by Jewish uh, artists and writers took took again and again hit punch Hitler in the snout, kick him in the butt, and and go after the Japs as well. Uh, and 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 that set of imagery is one that we've drummed into us. We've come to accept it as almost not necessarily political because it is so much part of the consensus politics of America at that same period of time. You go to the next slide. But when we deal with, for example, hate groups in contemporary superhero comics, we see a much more divided field. We can see Batman or Static Shock go after hate groups, Static Shock particularly going after Islamophobic groups in the wake of 9-11. But Frank Miller's Holy Terror originally intended as a part a continuation of his work on Batman is still published as a super brutal story of superheroes slaughtering Islam, 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 Arab and Islamic um, political leaders in the wake of 9-11. So we see a debate in the superhero comics about what the political mission of a superhero should be in the face of hate groups on the one hand and um, what, what my what Republicans in the U.S. like to saw, call red, radical Islam in the other. If we go to the next slide, please. At the same time, uh, grassroots appropriations are using superhero memes to strike back against people like Donald Trump. And this, it's a, here we see Birdman, uh, who was popularized in the Academy Award-winning film a few years back, who was in Mexico, emerged as a popular meme for fighting for social justice across the society. And, and Birdman will take on the drug cartels, the political leadership of Mexico, and in this case, the anti-immigrant rhetoric of a Donald Trump. Uh, so again, what is the superhero fighting for? What is, this, what is the superhero standing for? Is a central question we may want to ask. And next slide. Or we saw briefly uh, Green Lantern taking a stance against homophobia. Uh, again, fighting against causes that might have been more minority perspectives at the time that comic was first produced, even if the, the call, even if we're seeing dramatic gains for GLBT rights in more recent recent years. Next slide. Every so often, we see political figures make their way into superhero comics, often on the fringe. Here we see Savage Dragon endorsing Barack Obama and Faith endorsing Hillary Clinton, both second-tier superhero comics, not from DC and Marvel. But next slide. But once Obama is elected president, he makes an appearance in the, on, on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man as part of an industry-wide celebration of Obama, the fan-in-chief, uh, the geek in the White House, uh, so forth. And so, yes, we can definitely see Obama appear in superhero comics. Here we go, next slide. But the opposite is true, right? Ms. uses superhero comic imagery to, see, to tell us what Obama stands for. Um, and it's interesting to look at this superhero cover alongside the Wonder Woman cover that I presented earlier. This is what a feminist looks like. Okay, next, next slide. And on a grassroots level, we can see that same logic extend to a variety of other political figures. So here are Bernie Sanders' superhero memes and cosplay that was, we can find easily on the internet looking back on the last presidential election season. Next slide. Or we can see someone like Donald Trump portrayed as a figure of anarchy, uh, as, a, as a new, the new joker. Um, and it's interesting to think about this alongside the Joker-Obama figure that ended up being used mostly by the right and their struggle against Obamacare. The connection of American political literacy to the Jokers is an essay waiting to be written, I think. 
Okay, next slide. We're also seeing as America struggles, particularly with, with issues of race and racial identity and racial justice over the last decade or so, the superhero plays that role very importantly, both in the mainstream superhero comics and elsewhere. So Truth um, has features, uh, combines the story of the Tuskegee experiments with, um, with um, the, the super soldier program from Captain America and is a very politically charged Afrocentric version of Captain America, end quote. Uh, and, and next slide, please. Uh, and we, some of you will have seen Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is one of America's most powerful social critics at the moment, particularly on issues of race, class, inclusion, uh, incarceration, and so forth, taking over the writing of Black Panther. And if, this is the first of my clips, so if you can hit play, we will hear a little bit about what Ta-Nehisi Coates has had to say about his role there. Think, think if you're like a young man in West Baltimore, and you know, all around you is a considerable amount of powerless, powerlessness. You probably have an attraction to people with power. I could lose myself for long periods of time uh, with comic books. So this idea that the superhero offers us a fantasy of power, and that fantasy of power could be connected not just to adolescence growth hormones, but actually to the degree of powerlessness that we have in a society, and that, that, that writing to people without power, writing for people who aspire to power, can be an important function of a social critic working through mainstream commercial culture. So it has animated the discussions around ta Coates beginning to write for Black Panther. Okay, next slide. And certainly this question of how superheroes relate to the Black Lives Matter movement has animated discussion around Netflix uh, Luke Cage series this, this past past few months. Next slide, please. So if we just take a sample look at headlines uh, of critical response to the Luke Cage series, again and again we see the notion of a bulletproof black man in the era of Black Lives Matter. Um, the question, you know, some people said, um, so, so several critics called the series unapologetically black, which deeply problematic phrase, but speaks to the political significance that has gotten attached to the Luke Cage series and uh, in, in, in the current political context in the U.S. Next slide, please. And we see similarly that the Jessica Jones series uh, that Netflix has produced ends up being a space for debating rape, sexual, sexual violence, and women's power. And again, we can go through a couple of headlines here, just click through. But so, but so far, so 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 far, I'm focused mostly on the kinds of political stories that comics themselves tell about superheroes. But most of my focus here is on the opposite: is what use do we make of superheroes? How do superheroes become resources we use on the grassroots level to imagine the possibility for political change? What are some of those other things we can do with superheroes? And we can see the debates about race and racism in American society by just looking on the web at some of the memes and appropriations and redrawings of these figures that have cropped out there, or the way these roles get performed at protest marches and so forth. So here we see a commemoration of one of the heroes of the debate in South Carolina about the Confederate flag, a woman who climbed up a flagpole and took down the Confederate flag when the government seemed unwilling to do so. Next slide. 
This is from the Jack Kirby project and a project of Af a group of African artists who are reclaiming Jack Kirby's work. In this case, we see Magneto layered on top of Malcolm X, sort of reclaiming the kind of political allegory of the debates between Dr. Xavier and Malcolm a and um, Magneto that um, Ramsey Fawaz writes about so powerfully in his, his book. Next slide. Or we see kind of a literal reclaiming of the superhero iconography uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement, even more direct political statement than appeared in the kind of implicit allegory that Luke Cage was offering on, on, on Netflix. Next slide. I got very interested in this idea of the superhero as a political allegory that could be used by marginalized groups and struggles for social justice when we got deeper into the dreamer movement for the book that I just had come out of by any media necessary. We discovered there that a pervasive use of Superman as an allegory for thinking about the experience of being undocumented in the United States. The movement is very clear that people are not illegal and they're not aliens, but if there ever were such a thing as an illegal alien, Kal-El from the planet Krypton would fit the bill. Here's a guy who was sent away by his parents to, to, to a new world in search of a better life in hopes of surviving a, a cataclysmic society, who crosses the border in the middle of the night, lands in, a, in the middle of Kansas, gets adapted by an Anglo family, who teaches him to hide who he is and where he's come from, but nevertheless goes out and fights for truth, justice in the American way, dressed in garbs that reflect his ethnic origins, that is the clothing he brought with him from Krypton. Telling the story in that way has been, become bridging social capital, that in the United States, undocumented youth have embraced the Superman story to explain to non-people who may never have talked to someone who was undocumented before what they're fighting for, what their life story has been about. And it's telling that Superman himself was created by two second generation Eastern European Jewish immigrants, and that the immigration narrative has been part of Superman from the very beginning. So what we're looking at is a, a moment of communication, a political allegory that's transferred across 70, 80 years of human history between two generations of immigrants, each fighting to establish themselves within American society. And as we look, if you go to the next slide, and, and as that, that idea took off, then we're also seeing, um, seeing that uh, this, uh, this image gets applied to a wide variety of other superheroes. You suddenly realize how few of the defenders of the American way of life were actually born, na native born Americans, how many of them come from somewhere else and nevertheless have embraced American lifestyles and values. And that's the heart of a particular retelling of this political narrative. Next slide. A um, little bit of look, further look from, brings us to the work of photographer Dulce Pinzon, uh, who creates a series of images, you can click through them, showing the superheroes performing the kinds of jobs often done by undocumented workers. Pinzon explains the principal objective of the series is to pay homage to those brave and determined men and women that somehow manage without the help of any supernatural power to withstand extreme conditions of labor in order to help their families and communities survive and prosper. So here what's significant is not, uh, what's significant is that the way these figures, yeah, click through those. The way these figures are, the, the superpowers are, see, this, we're using superpowers to comment on lack of power, on those people who, who nevertheless per, persevere in their everyday life doing hard tasks 
that might have required super strength, but they lack power. And the use, the juxtaposition of the superhero in this context is all about struggles over power and struggles over inclusion in in society. Next slide. Oh, okay. So as I said, this idea of civic imagination. Next, no, next slide's fine. Is civic imagination is animating the work that my team is doing here at USC. You'll see some early introductions of this idea in our book, By Any Media Necessary, The New Youth Activism. There's more, there's a specific piece about superheroes and American political movements in the book Civic Media depicted here. Next slide. Part of our, part of why we turned to this was the inspiration provided to us by the fan organization, Harry Potter, the Harry Potter Alliance, um, which built is built in part around J.K. Rowling's graduation speech at Harvard, where he says, where she said, we do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. And the Harry Potter Alliance and, and some of its former leaders like Andrew Slack have begun, have really drilled down on that phrase, imagine better, to try to think about how we can mobilize politically through tapping the narratives that popular culture provides us as resources for imagining alternatives to the current, current conditions. In that context, the phrase imagine better means two things. One is we need to do a better job of imagining alternatives to the status quo, and we need to imagine better worlds than the ones that we currently occupy. And so these two things together are part of what we need to bring about social change. We're not saying that have, have imagined things and you, the world will change by itself. Imagination is understood here is part of the struggles for social justice and political change. But imagination is often the devalued element in political campaigns, particularly on the left, which have tended to emphasize rationalism and just the facts man perspectives uh, rather than recognizing the need to tap effect. When the result in the United States has been what I would call an election without hope, that Hillary Clinton, among other things, failed to provide young Americans with an image of a transformed society that they could work together to achieve, and only came, came to that very, very late in the campaign. So that what we need, if we're gonna bring about some kinds of political change, is, a, is the ability to use the imagination as a political tool in new ways. And the section I'm going in now will sort of pull out some of the, the debates around the role of the imagination in politics that are informing our work. Suddenly we're seeing lots of political theorists arrive at the same point. So next slide. So Stephen Duncombe is telling us, scratch an activist and you're likely to find a fan. It's no mystery why. Fandom provides the space to explore um, fabrication, uh, fabricated worlds that operate according to different notions than those we expect in, in, to see in our, in our real lives. Fandom also necessitates uh, relating, uh, necessitates relationship with others, fellow fans with whom they share interests, develop networks and institutions and create a common culture. The ability to imagine alternatives uh, and act upon them not coincidentally, is the basic prerequisite for political activism. So Stephen Duncombe is maybe the writer who's most directly tackled this need of the left to tap popular myths, to have a sense of pleasure in activism, and to use the imagination to envision all political alternatives. This is, this is a quote from a piece he wrote recently for Transformative Works and Culture, in a special issue we edited on fan activism. Next, next slide, please. 
Um, here he's talking, but his, he's also on the web has reclaimed the notion of utopianism, uh, saying that we need utopian thinking because we're routed, we're constrained by the tyranny of the possible. And that phrase, tyranny of the possible, is one that our team has come back to again and again. The idea is that groups become, particularly groups with limited resources and power, become eaten up by the, the immediate needs and immediate struggles that they're trying to work through, and as a consequence, lose the ability to think long term and lose the ability to take those leaps of imagination, which allow them to really think about what alternatives to their current conditions might look like. Next slide, please. And he suggests instead that utopian imagination is key to that process. It's not that people literally believe the utopia is true, that utopia is not something we currently live in or may ever live in, but by having that alternative, we have a way of asking, debating among ourselves what the ideals may be, what are we trying to achieve, what are our values collectively, and using that as a, as a, a, a toolkit, a measuring stick to think about our current condition. And unless we have a utopia that says what we're fighting for, we can't really assess what we're fighting against. And I think those things come hand in hand. So the idea of a critical utopian version of politics starts from the idea that utopian is a discursive provocation for thinking about other alternatives. Next slide, please. Uh, next slide. Uh, next slide. Okay, so similarly, if we click again, we'll see the quote. This, this, the Southers are calling this the civic imagination. Um, so this is uh, this one. This book tell, writes as we define it: the civic imagination consists of the ways in which people individually and collectively envision better political, social, and civic environments. Civic imaginations are people's theories of civic lives. They're cognitive roadmaps moral compasses and guides that shape uh, that shape participation and motivate action. Next slide, click. These underlying frameworks help people make sense of their place in the world and help generate notions of what it means to work for change. Civic imaginations underpin the process of identifying problems and solution, envisioning better societies and environments, and developing a plan to make those visions of a better future into reality. So I think the key thing here is this idea of popular theories of civic life, theories of political change, and how do we use the, the tools that our imaginations give us to think about politics in different ways. Next slide. Uh, here's another statement uh, about the power of imagination in social movements. So social movements sustain themselves to the level of desire, a movement milieu expresses a desire for different forms of social relations, different ways of being, a different world. In doing so, a movement allows participants to feel their often perhaps squelched desires or develop new ones that, that through articulation can become contagious, flooding others' imagination and inspiring them into movement. So we're seeing this idea, and here are the ideas that we need these animating ideals, these fantasies that bring about social change. And it may be why we're seeing people drawing on the iconography of popular culture so often in protest marches around the world. Next slide. Uh, the Institute for the Future tells us, any democracy requires a thriving public imagination in order to make viable, shareable, and understandable 
to all the people, new ideas, new models, new potential politics, policies. We cannot make any kind of collective decision unless the collective can understand what is at stake and envision where it may lead. So we must strive to understand the imagination of others whose reality is defined by different experiences and assumptions. So from this, we get the idea that the imagination can't just be individual or personal. It has to be collective and intersubjective, and that we have to be open to the, debating different ideas of imagination with groups whose experiences are different from our own. So part of being, being a, thinking about political change is developing that inner subjectivity, that empathy that allows us to connect our struggles with those of others if we're going to bring about meaningful political change. Next slide. Others are talking about this as the radical imagination. The radical imagination is not something that we have as individuals. It's something that we do and that we do together. The radical imagination forces us to reimagine our relationship with those who suffer and imagine the ways our own suffering or fortune is tied to the suffering and fortune of others. The radical imagination is not just about thinking. Uh, ah. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, it's also about thinking differently. It's also about acting differently. The radical imagination takes us toward solidarity. So again, how do we think together about the changes that need to be t taking place? And this need for a collective vision of um, social justice, of what it is, you know, we can sort of build on Benedict Anderson's notion of an imagined community and carry it forward into the idea of an imagining community that is a group of people that work together to imagine alternatives to their current situation. Next slide. Uh, Ramzi Fawaz talks in his book about the pop about popular fantasy. He says that I use the term popular fantasy to identify expressions of fantasy that suture together current social and political realities with impossible happenings to produce figures that describe and legitimate nascent cultural desires and modes of social belonging that appear simply out of reach within the terms of dominant political discourse. So again, the imagination fantasy allows us to think about political alternatives in new ways. Okay, next slide. So as we think about this idea, this function of the political and civic imagination, the radical imagination, it's performed different, by different language, different practices, and different historical moments and cultures around the world. So for example, if you go to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., there's this amazing statue of George Washington wearing a toga. As far as I know, George Washington never went to toga parties at William and Mary Co College. Instead, this sort of reminds us of the role, the degree to which the founding fathers in the United States were shaped by fantasies about ancient Rome and ancient Athens, the classical world. They wrote and signed their, their political papers, often with pen names taken from the names of Greek orators and Roman heroes. So we see that as a moment where a particular kind of political imagination motivated political action. Or if we think about someone like Martin Luther King, who framed the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s through the language of the black church. Phrases like, let my people go, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land, I've crossed the River Jordan. All of those phrases connected biblical tradition to polit the political and civic imagination. Next slide. As we look around the world today, what we're seeing is that the civic imagination today is much more likely to be served by borrowings from popular culture. So here we see a group of protesters, uh, Palestinian protesters, marching through the occupied territory, dressed like Navi from James Cameron's avatar, chanting, sky people, you can't take our land. 
taking the story of Avatar, putting it on and dramatizing it on in their world, capturing it on video cameras, sending it out on YouTube, and getting seen by far more people than the protest would have seen otherwise. So it's an act of global communication by Palestinians connecting to um, a transnational media conglomerate franchise, but in doing so, reclaiming it as a resource for the civic imagination. Next slide, please. We see here protesters, student protesters in Thailand standing down armed guards using the three-finger salute from Hunger Games, another example of where popular culture, his iconography is being appropriated as tools for political for challenging political establishments. Next slide, please. So superheroes turn out to be worldwide a really incredible tool for doing the kind of civic imagination work I'm talking about. For a number of reasons, they provide that shared vocabulary for talking about personal cultural identities. They give us differing conceptions of justice and the social good, the nature of power and responsibility. They encourage us to think about our place in society. What do we owe the collective good? And they're culturally pervasive, especially in the wake of Marvel's uh, global uh, empire building. Uh, they're widely known around the world, and we're in, in a minute I'm going to talk a bit more about how people in other, other parts of the planet are beginning to connect their struggles directly to the, the, the American, previously American-specific iconography of the superhero. So superheroes then become really important tools for thinking about how the civic imagination might work. Next slide. So on one hand, we're seeing people and uh, in the, in the American struggles over racism and diversity inclusion. We're seeing, for example, cosplay being used to allow people of color and uh, is, is, uh, American Muslims to perform, uh, perform inclusion, to imagine themselves as full participants in Americans in our society by taking on identities that might once have been ex they might once have been excluded from and daring to occupy them for, them, for, their, for themselves. Next. So here we see them as occupying superheroes. Okay, next slide. We're seeing in fan practices like fan casting, where Hollywood is saying they can't find the actors of color to cast in some of its big movie franchises, and fans online are coming together and reimagining the superhero as per might be performed through, um, through uh, race-bending practices. Um, and it's really interesting ideas about who these characters might be, what their essence is. If we strip aside race and or re reconfigure race, we may think about who these, pe these perso personas are in a very different terms. Next slide. We see it in something like uh, the, the Hawkeye Project, where feminist fans are take, taking on the sexism of how the traditional cover art and redesigning them, basically substituting Hawkeye for the female superheroes. And the basic idea is if it, if it looks okay on Hawkeye, then it probably isn't sexist. But you don't see many covers with the female superheroes that might meet that criteria. Okay, next slide. So we see just a couple of examples here. Next slide of how awkward it is to imagine Hawkeye doing the kinds of poses we take for granted often and we look at the cover art for superhero comics. Okay, next slide. We've seen, we've seen the the superheroes get reclaimed for the gay GLBT movement, particularly around debates on marriage equality and uh, gays in the military. And we can see here over the next few slides a bunch of different appropriations 
of the superhero as standing in for the increased power and visibility of GLBT activists in our society. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. Okay, next slide. And we, we were sort of seeing people push against the boundaries of who gets to be a superhero, what do superheroes look like. Uh, this is a feminist uh, piece of art. This feminist art, I think, captures what it would be to have a range of superheroes who looked more like the constituencies that are brought together at a feminist rally. Um, and I think it's an exciting set of images that expands our understanding of what a superhero might look like. Next slide. And here, here we see uh, color lines sort of use the idea of racial transformers, uh, allies and participants, um, ways to use your power uh, to change the dynamic and conversation around racial, racial justice. Next slide. We, we're seeing uh, examples of people just taking advantage of fan art competitions. This woman, a Canadian Muslim girl, uh, Nora Salab, um, Salah, uh, entered a, co a contest drawing the Marvel characters and got national and international attention when she drew the various characters wearing a hijab, that she wanted to see people who looked more like her in the comics. Uh, and her artwork resonated with lots of fans across the country and across the world. Next slide. Here's another, this one, this Captain Singh uh, is a Sikh uh, who, um, because goes around New York City, particularly around the New York subways, and performs the role of Captain America wearing a turban. And he has these kind of street theater confrontations with people where he's responding to the see something, say something campaign that is run in the, the subways in New York, where people are encouraged to report to authorities, people who seem strange or out of place to them. It's a policy that has not necessarily captured very many terrorists, but has identified large numbers of brown people wearing backpacks. And so he wanted to go around and say, what does a hero look like? What does an American look like? Who looks out of place here? Isn't my Captain America and as American as any other? And by having these encounters uh, in real time and space, which often get photographed and captured on video and circulated through social media, he creates a moment to talk about what it is to be Sikh in the context of America. Next slide. Uh, and... Um, you know, as, as he also is showing up at protest marches uh, and challenging uh, racism in, in, in American culture. Next slide. We see around the world uh, people taking on the persona of the superhero and patrolling the streets of their own cities, trying to make them a better place. Here we see your own uh, Captain Australia up in, from Brisbane. Uh, and if we go to the next slide, here's Captain Australia's mission. Uh, to prevent crimes through acting as a deterrent by actively patrolling and thus intimidating the criminal element. We can decide for ourselves how intimidating Captain Australia looks. To intervene when I see criminal activity or to solve crimes that I become aware of. To inspire normal people to be better by demonstrating a level of moral excellence that I hope will serve as an example to the people I met. And if all else fails, I can accept simply amusing or shocking people, having ordinary citizens lighten their hearts by amusement or surprise. So, you know, often this stuff gets discussed as if these people imagine themselves to have actual superpowers, as if blurring the line between fantasy and reality. 
Whereas I would suggest most of them are sort of seeing the power of fantasy being brought back into our world of everyday life as having that power of shocking people into thinking about their urban environments differently. This is the next slide, please. So um, we, one of the things we use in the literature about civic imagination is this phrase genres of participation. So genre participation is a set of, of roles that we all understand how to perform. They're social constructs, they're collected conventions. They answer questions about why, how, what, whom, when, where we might act politically. And they allow us a sense of shared purpose and practice. Genres of participation allow us to know what we need to do to join the movement. So if we go to the next slide. And I would suggest that knowing what a superhero is gives us a narrative of how to perform, a set of roles we can perform and we can take on civic roles through that identity. So a superhero is a heroic character who is a selfless pro-social mission with superpowers, extraordinary abilities, advanced technology, or highly developed physical, mental, or mystical skills, who is, has, has a super, uh, I can't read that, embodying in a code name an iconic costume. I'll let you, trust you to read the rest, but this is a classic definition of what a superhero is. Think about it as you watch this next clip on the next slide. So if we get in the next slide, we can see one of the Western, the American real world superheroes talking about his, his goals and mission. Okay, next slide. So I think if you listen to that clip, uh, we see him, all, he works through almost all of those traits of the definition of the superhero that we've, that, that we've used so often in our study of the superhero characters. He knows what a superhero is. He knows what a superhero is supposed to do and is using that to imagine other possibilities for his environment. In that case, that was in San Diego. Here we see the Extreme Justice League uh, from Salt Lake City. There are a number of such organizations around the U.S. and around the world, and there's even a Wikipedia site, a wiki site dedicated simply to real-life superheroes and that allow these superheroes to form social communities online and compare tips, trade chips with each other and so forth. Next slide. So as we think about what it means to use the superhero in this way, we move away from the emphasis on resistance that cultural studies had sort of embraced throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and when the, uh, which often went hand in hand with the notion of culture jamming, hijacking the signs to express opposition to the dominant value. This is about appropriation for sure. It's sometimes oppositional, but more often than not, it is building on things that are consciously present in the popular myths that are going on. These, Captain Australia is not opposing or hijacking resisting the language of the superhero when he patrols the streets. Rather, he's embodying them, performing them, using them as a resource. He's negotiating with them to create a new set of identities in relation to those popular myths. And those identities become more oppositional the further you get out of the, the sort of dominant groups within the societies and get to groups that are struggling for access to power and resources. But they're never purely oppositional in the ways that I think we're prepared, we've been taught to look for in cultural studies. And so we need a different language, a different set of theories to think about what it is to occupy popular culture uh, in all the senses of the word. Next slide. So let's, let's skip this clip and move forward to the next slide while we're... So Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel can, we can see is sort of embodying some of those things that the American Muslim community had been fighting for, to see themselves depicted as superheroes, to see their lives included in the popular narratives about who gets to fight for social justice. 
Sana Amnanath talks about it. Islam as being part of Kamala's identity. The book isn't preaching about religion or the Islamic faith in particular. It's about what happens when you struggle with the labels imposed on you and how that forms your sense of self. So the character then exists as a narrative that can attract a new generation of readers, a different, may fit within different cultural contexts, may also bridge to non, um, often bridges to non-Muslim groups that are eager to understand more fully what it is to be Muslim in American society. It creates a context, a social debate about Muslim identity as it relates to the superhero. Next slide. And that in turn can become a resource that can be acted on. So when Cal San Francisco, there was a series of anti-Muslim ads on the subway and people were printing out stickers of Kamala Khan and defacing the, the subway advertisements, telling them to stop the hate, stamp out racism, calling all bigotry busters. So in some senses, the resource that the comic offered becomes a, incited people to take action against hate crimes in their own community and to stand up against Islamophobia. Next slide, please. Um, Priya Shakti is an attempt to use that same vernacular language to do specific interventions around rape and sexual violence within India. Uh, so this here we see it's sort of a kind of in the Wonder Woman tradition, but on, grounded in Hindu mythology and being used to address a variety of issues, initially rape, now acid attacks and other things in India. Next slide. And in turn, the art, when I was visiting India two summers ago, saw that art being used as street graffiti, and we've seen more and more the figure of Priya Shakti, the Priya Shakti characters being taken up and used at protest marches for women's groups around across India. So again, a political resource. These groups are working hand in hand with the political messages already embedded in the popular text and finding the mythology and incitement to think in new ways about their political identities. Next, next slide, please. Uh, in turn, India is searching, uh, uh, go, go back, That's, there's a clip, go back to the previous slide. Uh, so across, also while in India, I saw, saw this video produced by a comics company, no, go back, comics company, yeah, there, see? A uh, comics company that interviewed young women across the rural India about what they think superheroes might look like, and let's play that clip. So I really, what I love about this is we get such a totally different set of ideas about what the mission of a superhero might be. Ideas grounded in the real, the realities faced by rural girls in India living in poverty, fighting for their rights within the society. And the superhero there seems to emerge as a way that they can imagine alternatives, a better world. It is a superhero comes to embody this idea of the utopian imagination I talked about earlier. All right, next slide. And I think I'm going to skip this clip, but this this clip is from Girl Rising, and in it we see an Egyptian girl describing a moment of sexual assault, where she's able to go into a superhero fantasy and survive the kind of brutality of the culture around her. This is a piece that Ellen Kirkpatrick called to my attention, um, and it's definitely worth checking out if you see the film Girl Rising. Okay, next slide. So it's not, but it's not just in the Hindu world that we're seeing these, the figure of the superhero get appropriate. And this next is a clip from the Burqa Avenger television series out of Pakistan. Next, so hit play. So the producers of Burqa Avengers uh, talk about the ways that the Burqa, which is often read in the West as a sign of political oppression, 
gets reread through the superhero narrative to, talk, to stand in for a different notion of identity. So it's not a sign of oppression. She is using the burqa to hide her identity like other superheroes. Since she is a woman, we could have dressed her up as Catwoman or Wonder Woman, but that wouldn't have worked in Pakistan. So here we're seeing as the as superhero moves globally, as the media franchise is introduced to countries around the world that historically would have had less access to the, this iconography and this genre conventions, it's being reclaimed and reoccupied by people there to tell their own stories of, of, of what, what power is, what, how it can be used, what superhero identities might look like, and so forth. So next slide. Um, I'm not going to play the clip now, but there's a really powerful... Um, public service announcement that came out using Batman to call attention to the plight of children in the Syrian refugee camps. And so if you type in Batman and Syrian refugee on online, you'll find it. And I think appreciate what it's doing with the figure of Batman is putting the presence of Batman into the scene to draw attention to the other things that we see around the background. Okay, next slide. Uh, 99 is another project in the Islamic world to use superheroes to tell stories of Islam. In a world where Muslims were just evil characters, these offer another way of seeing Muslims. The only way to combat the extremism is through arts and culture appealing to young through stories. So this is a kind of use of the superhero to counter extremism, to counter terrorism, to sort of provide alternatives for, for the Arab world in terms of what a better future might look like asking them what are they fighting for rather than what are they fighting against. Next slide. Uh, and here in, there in Australia, something similar takes place around the creation of the television series Clever Man. So Ryan Griffin says, we were playing Ninja Turtles, and in that moment I suddenly wished we had something cultural, something aboriginal that he could cling to with as much excitement as he did with this. I wanted to create an aboriginal superhero that he could connect with no matter what others said. I wanted a character that would uh, empower him to take a stand and fight when presented with racism. Okay, if we go to the next slide. Here is a Nigerian project, Comic Republic, which basically arrives at the same place. There was a moral vacuum in the present generation, a general lack of icons. People stopped believing in the institutions of old. I don't think Africa and Africans are well represented in mainstream Western comics. That's why we are here, to give us a place in this genre and to show the world what Africans are capable of. I feel like the onus is on us as Africans and African-American creators and diverse creators in general to put more of on um, uh, and our, 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 our stories out there by any means necessary. And go to the next slide. And we're going to skip this clip and go to the next one. So I think what we're seeing there is worldwide uh, move to use the superhero language as cultural producers and as activists to talk about questions of justice, identity, power, empowerment, and to open up alternatives, uh, forms of the utopian or civic imagination, the radical imagination, to think about the world differently. Now, I don't want to mean the claim that everything that appropriates popular culture and uses the tools of fan activism is necessarily progressive or is making a better world. I often use the example of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation and the Ku Klux Klan in America as an example of fan activism that is incredibly reactionary. The Klan, American Klan did not burn crosses prior to Birth of a Nation. Griffith uh, took the idea from the Scottish rebellions uh, and incorporated it into the film because it was cinematically powerful. But ever since, every act of terror performed using burning crosses in someone's front lawn 
was by this radical Christian group was in fact an act of fan activism. And we should be very cautious about celebrating all forms of fan activism. We need a different set of ethical standards to think about what's going on here. Not the standards of resistance, but also not standards that simply celebrate all fandom as, as good for the society at large. Next slide. Or we could think about the role in which Wagner and uh, created the mythology, the iconography that shaped the third, the, the third Reich. So we could see Hitler as a, a Wagnerian fan who sought to perform the popular fantasies he saw in the ring cycle on the society as a whole. Next slide. So that's one of the challenges we can think about. Ethan Zuckerman poses a slightly different one. Um, he, he's the head of the Civic Media Center at MIT. He says, if we need simple narratives so people can amplify and spread them, or we forced to engage only with the simplest of problems or to propose only the simplest of solution. And here, this is one of the, I thought, one of the more bloodthirsty and, you know, right-wing versions of the superhero iconography to come out of 9-11. It is a notion of the superhero as a brute force that well, no one can take down that emerged for some people in the wake of the terrorist attacks. So this question, though, how simple does the simple the superhero narrow simplify politics in such a way that it doesn't allow us to act on the real world? Does is it blunting our ability to define criticism against the society? And I think this is the question we should be asking again and again as we see this blurring of the lines between popular culture, fandom, and activism. Okay, next slide. We can see the same characters that are used for progressive causes get used for reactionary causes. Next slide. And we can see in the same movement, multiple versions of that superhero emerging. So I, I like this quote from Max Haven and Alex Kaznabesh about the radical imagination. And I'm, I'm gonna sort of trace it over a couple of slides here. As you do, look at these very different mobilizations of the superhero by the Occupy movement. Here we see Bruce Wayne embodying the 1%. It says, instead of paying taxes to support a corrupt system, I put my money where it does the most good, a utility belt full of sharp pieces of metal that I throw at mentally ill. I'm the 1%. So here Batman is being critiqued. On the next slide, you'll see how the, the, the bat signal got taken up by the Occupy movement as a call to action by the public against uh, wealth inequality. So movements must see themselves not as sites of struggle only, but also as catalysts for the imagination. They can't limit themselves to offering seemingly practical solutions to small questions, but must fearlessly advance in the visions of a very different reality. So next slide, final, the next slide here. The radical imagination is not just one thing. It emerges from tensions, arguments, debates, and differences. We don't want a world where everyone's imaginations are the same. So I think the power of the superhero is not, iconography is not that it reduces everything to a single narrative or a single message, but quite the opposite. All of these multiple superheroes with multiple identities and multiple missions, multiple powers, open up a debate about what kind of hero the society needs. They invite us to think about differences between a superhero for Kenya and a superhero or Nigeria, superhero for Syria, superhero for Pakistan or India, or the or the Aboriginal people in Australia. They invite us to think about what, how superheroes might use power responsibly. 
These are the kinds of debates that fans have long had about superheroes, right? Is the superhero a figure of fascism or democracy is a debate that is as old as the superhero comics themselves. And that takes us back to the origin myth that I began this talk with and to Kurt Busiek's call for asking again and again, what else can we do with the genre iconography of the superhero? Okay, I think that's the last slide. So with that, I conclude my own oh, one more. But if we work hard and we create intentional spaces, we can sometimes synchronize our imagination like the common beat of many different drums. I love that image, the common beat of many different drums. So the challenge I end with is how do we think together about the kinds of heroes we need worldwide to bring about a more just society in the wake of Brexit and Trump and all of these reactionary movements around the world that seem to be about limiting possibilities. We need to open up the idea of what a better society might look like. And I believe superhero-based activism may be one of the tools we use to do that. So thanks. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.